May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our, all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. When I was a young boy, my mother had this, um, this crush on the singer Tony Orlando. I think she still does. I'm not sure. But I remember us driving around in one of those big old giant boats of a car and listening to the AM radio, and this song would come on the radio. Tie a yellow ribbon round the old oak tree. It's been three long years. Do you still... You know this song? A couple of nodding heads out there. I see those heads. Even if you don't. Um, it's, it's really something that we're all aware of. That is that people have used ribbons to sort of mark an awareness my mother, listening to that song, used to tell me a story about the, uh, uh, some guy who had written an article about, or uh, a, a newspaper sort of story about a fellow who was in prison for a long time and, uh, and was coming home. And, you know, tie a yellow ribbon if you still want me to come home was the sort of message. And even in our culture, we use ribbons all the time to sort of denote this, don't we? I mean, um, pink ribbons to denote uh, breast cancer awareness and Purple ribbons are, um, are you know, awareness of domestic violence. Um, yellow ribbons, of course, a reminder of people who are um, serving the country in war. And so you see these, even like magnetic ribbon decals on the back of cars and so on. Little ribbon that says to us, don't forget about this. You know, sort of like a, a ribbon tied around your finger. I was, I was sort of surprised to learn that this practice goes back quite a ways. In the 19th century, the wives of U.S. cavalrymen would tie a yellow ribbon in their hair to show the devotion to their husband who was serving in the army or wherever he might be away. And so they would say, you know, that they were wives of cavalrymen. The little little ribbon, wherever it is, saying to everybody who sees it, don't forget about us. But imagine on the other side, the cavalrymen who come home and see their wives with those yellow ribbons. You know, the guy who came home in the story from prison seeing the yellow ribbons tied around the old oak tree. It's a different story to them, right? It's a different message to us, don't forget. To the one who sees, the one for whom the ribbon is intended, it says, welcome home. Doesn't it? The young, the young bride in the 19th century who tied a yellow ribbon in her hair for her Calvary man husband. I want you here. I'm longing for you to be home. I'm so glad you're back. Um, about 10 years ago, I traveled to Africa and was there for three weeks. Doesn't sound like a very long time, but I, I, I'd taken this medicine called Larium. It's an anti-malaria agent. And it really messes with your head. I mean really messes with your head. It made me kind of crazy. Um, Not that I'm not already kind of crazy, but it sort of pushes us that are close to that line a little further down the road. It made me very anxious, paranoid, and fearful, and all those sorts of things. And it made being away from home very, very difficult. I remember how anxious I was to get home. And it took me like 40 hours, once we decided to start traveling, planes, trains, and automobiles, like 40 hours to get home from where I was in Mozambique, Africa. And when I landed in Atlanta, finally back in the USA, just a few hours from home, I had to go through immigration. And you know how they do, you know, where did you go? 
What did you see while you were there? Did you know anybody that you were there? Did anybody send a package? You know how they do, all these questions. And so this young lady's asking me these questions as she's looking at my passport and trying to decipher all the places that I'd been. Finally, she was clear that I wasn't a terrorist. I mean, I could be, but I didn't really look like one. So she says to me, okay, you look like you're fine. She stamps my passport, hands it back to me, and finally, for the first time, smiles. And she says to me, welcome home. You know what? In that moment, I had to run away from there because I was afraid I was going to kiss her or I was going to um, you know, jump up and down. I was going to do something to say, whew, you know, I'm home. You know, I was so happy. Maybe burst out in tears. It's so great to be home. You've been there, haven't you? You've been in that place where you, you want to be home and you finally get there. You're fu- and, it, and for some people, it's different. For some of us, home is a place, you know. It's, it's the ancestral building where you grew up, you know. This is my home. But for others, it's a, it's a people. You know, it's, it's where mom and dad are. It's, it's where brothers and sisters are. Cousins, nieces, your Labrador, whatever it is for you. It, that's where home is. So whether it's, a, whether it's a place or whether it's a people, when you get there, you know you're there, don't you? And, and it's so good to be home. You know that there are people in this world, even here tonight, who do not have a people or a place to call home. There are people who are not, not welcome in their home. Maybe, maybe a quarrel has broken out among family members and they can't go back. There are people in Syria right now who have had to flee their homes because of war and they're refugees. They don't want to be away from their homes, but they have no other choice. And some people, millions and millions around the world, who have no people and no place. They wander homeless, longing for that chance to call some place or some people home. Mother Teresa said that the worst form of poverty is not the lack of money. It is being someone who is unloved, unwanted, and uncared for. That, she said, is the worst form of poverty. As we gather tonight in a warm church with friends and family and good cheer in our hearts, maybe a little warmth from some um, mildly fermented beverage, I don't know, but we have this sense of joy and happiness and goodness, it would be good for us to remember that not everybody has the same feeling tonight. That not everybody around the world feels as we do. Sometimes home is a wish. It's a desire that can't be fulfilled. I was reading Luke's Gospel as I was thinking about this sort of thing, or at least the, reading the Gospel kind of spurred this sort of idea or this thought. I think it's interesting how I can read this story year after year after year and something always new comes to me, don't you? I mean, you, you do the same. You see this, and, and this year it, it comes in verse 7. If you have your bulletins, turn with me, will you? It's right at the bottom, I think, of page 6 in the Gospel lesson. Luke chapter 2, verse 7. Luke writes, And she, that is Mary, gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in bands of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. 
There's no place for them. You say, oh, of course. I mean, come on, Joe. Everybody knows that part of the story. I mean, Jesus is born in a, in a cave or a, a cattle stall or whatever because there was no place for them. I mean, that's, that's kind of Christianity 101 right here, right? I, I know, I know. But, but stay with me for just a moment. Because there's a little something that struck me about this that I had never thought of before. And that is this, that Luke writes his gospel not as an eyewitness. Luke had never seen Jesus. He didn't know him face to face. He comes much later in the story. Luke is the only writer in all of the, uh, the Holy Scripture who is not a Jew. He's the only Gentile to record a document in the, in the Bible. And he writes the book of Luke and the book of Acts. And he does it in a different way than, than the other writers. He really has two things going on. The first is, Luke wants everybody who feels like an outsider to remember that God wants us to be insiders. He does this page after page. Luke is the one who has women um, in the inner circle of Jesus. Luke is the one who brings Gentiles into the circle of Jesus. Luke is the one who brings all of the misfits and the outcasts of society and puts them right on the front page, page after page. Look through it sometime and, and just count the references to the people who are outsiders, made insiders. Luke's message that God is for everyone even comes in the genealogy when he reminds us that we are all born from Adam. But that's just one emphasis. The other one is this, is that Luke is a historian. He's not like the other writers in that he is very accurate about his his historical detail. Listen to what he says at the very opening. He dedicates this book, this Gospel of Luke, to his friend Theophilus. Perhaps a wealthy man who is is funding as as sort of a patron this writing. He writes this at the very beginning. Luke says, since many have undertaken to set down an orderly account of the events that have been fulfilled among us, that is, the events about Jesus, just as they were handed on to us by those who were from the beginning were eyewitnesses, Luke saying, I'm not one, and servants of the word, I too decided, listen to this, after investigating everything carefully. Do you hear that? Luke said, I investigated everything carefully, and I wrote this gospel. Now, thanks for this long trip around the barn, (laughs) because I do have a point here, okay? And that is this, that Luke writes the gospel, and he writes the birth story from somebody else's perspective. He researched it. There were only three people present at the birth of Jesus. One was Jesus. (laughs) The other was Joseph and Mary. Just three people there. And here's what I think. Not just me, but the whole weight and wealth of of New Testament scholars believe this same thing. That Luke tells the story of Jesus' birth from Mary's perspective. That Luke has interviewed Mary, the mother of Jesus. And what you get in the story of Jesus' birth in Luke chapter 2 is Mary's view. Mary's testimony about the birth of Jesus. Now, if that is true... I want you to look back at verse 7. Okay? I'm going to make just a little bit of modification to this. After I gave birth to my firstborn son, I wrapped him in bands of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no place for us in anyone's guest room. All I did was change the pronouns. 
After I gave birth to my firstborn son, Mary and Joseph traveled 90 miles from their birth home in Nazareth to the city of Bethlehem. And when they get there, no one, no one made room for them. And the word Luke uses is translated in is not an inn. It's a guest room. It's a room in people's homes. Inns, commercial inns didn't exist in the first century. They would have gone out of business because in the Middle East, it is, a, it is a moral imperative that you welcome people into your homes who are travelers and strangers, even if you don't know them at all. You give them a place to sleep and food to eat. About a year ago, Zachary and I were up in Cleveland. We bought a, uh, he bought a car, and we bought it from some people who were Israeli. They were Israeli Christians. And, um, and they welcomed us into the home. And, and sat us down and brought fruit out and cheese. And, I mean, we're just buying a car. You know, we kind of wanted to get out of there. And they have this whole spread in front of us. You know, eat, eat, eat. We're making hot beverages. You know, they're, this, is, this is what happens in the Middle Eastern world. And no one, no one gave them a room. No one said, come in. Imagine Mary, this young girl, 14 years old maybe, pregnant, about to give birth, and no one welcomes them into her, her into their home. There was no place for us, I think she said to Luke. Something else also occurred to me. Look back at verse 7. After I gave birth to my firstborn son, what's the only pronoun you can use here? I wrapped him in bands of cloth and laid him in a manger. After I had given birth, I wrapped this little baby in bands of cloth. Now, you know, I'm no expert in childbirth, but I've been to four, okay? <laughs> I have seen with my own eyes four live births. And that doesn't even count those scary movies they showed us in Mama's classes because I didn't really look. It was awful. Here's what I know about childbirth, that it is violent and, and painful and a near-death experience for the woman who is delivering this child. Now, it may be a little less with modern medication, but it is pretty much that, right? It is, when my wife was giving birth to our firstborn son, she bit me on the top of the head. Okay? I stayed away. I threw ice chips from across the room. <laughs> Imagine a 14-year-old girl delivering a baby with no one else there beside her husband, no midwife there to give her help, no other woman there to say, you're going to make it through this. She's all by herself. I wrapped him in bands of cloth and laid him in a manger. No one to offer a room, no one to bring help, no one to offer comfort. I saw with my own eyes my 19-year-old wife, I know we were children, weren't we, give birth to a boy. And, oh my word, I mean, she couldn't even, they gave him to me. She was in no condition to, to take care of a baby. And I'm guessing that Mary's Joseph wasn't much more help than I was. And she wrapped him in bands of cloth and laid him in a manger. Before Jesus could ever mouth a word 
or register a memory. This is what our world said to him. We have no room for you. We have no place for you. We will give you no comfort. Good old English word, no sucker. No sense of welcome at all. And the miracle of Christmas is that when we said we have no room for you, he said, but I still have room for you. And when we said we don't want you in our life, he said, but I still want to be in your life. And tonight, that rugged little manger isn't just for us a memory that Jesus was born in a very primitive place. Of course that's what it means. But it's more than that for us. It's a yellow ribbon that says, Welcome home. You belong here. You belong to me. And that's really, really good news. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.